We've been looking through the life of Abraham. We're up to uh, Genesis 23, uh, which in my Bible is entitled The Death of Sarah. So let's read the whole of that chapter. Sarah lived to be 127 years old. She died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went to mourn for Sarah and to weep over her. Then Abraham rose from beside his dead wife and spoke to the Hittites. He said, I am an alien and a stranger among you. And uh, does it say alien there? Yeah. Some Bibles it says foreigner, so I'll use alien, but it means foreigner. I'm an alien and stranger among you. Sell me some property for a burial site here so that I can bury my dead. The Hittites replied to Abraham, Sir, listen to us. You are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will refuse you his tomb for burying your dead. Then Abraham rose and bowed down before the people of the land, the Hittites. He said to them, if you're willing to let me bury my dead, then listen to me and intercede with Ephron, son of Zohar, on my behalf, so that he will sell me the cave of Machpelah, which belongs to him and is at the end of his field. Ask him to sell it me for the full price as a burial site among you. Ephron the Hittite was sitting among his people, and he replied to Abraham in the hearing of all the Hittites who come to the gate of his city. No, my Lord, he said, listen to me, I give you the field, and I give you the cave that's in it. I give you... It in the presence of my people, bury your dead. Again, Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron in their hearing, listen to me, if you will, I'll pay the price of the field, accept it from me, so that I can bury my dead here. Ephron replied to Abraham, answered Abraham, listen to me, my lord, the land is worth 400 shekels of silver, but what's that between me and you? Bury your dead. Abraham agreed to Ephron's terms and weighed out for him the price he'd named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weight current among the merchants. So Ephron's field in Machpelah near Mamre, both the field and the cave in it, all the trees within the borders of the field was legally made out to Abraham as his property in the presence of the Hittites who'd come to the gate of the city. Afterwards, Abraham buried his wife Sarah in the cave in the field of Machpelah near Mamre, which is at Hebron in the land of Canaan. So the field and the cave in it were legally made over to Abraham by the Hittites as a burial site. Okay, we're going to be looking at this passage or a part of this passage today. Let me ask a question, first of all, uh, before we get into it. How do we see ourselves? How do we see ourselves? People often tell us that how we see ourselves affects how we act. I would actually say there's some truth in that. So our society would have a strong emphasis on promoting self-esteem, that we see ourselves in a positive way, because if we see ourselves in a positive way, uh, then we will act accordingly in a positive way. I was listening to an interview this morning as I came in to the meeting with Andy Murray, who was obviously uh, starting out on his uh, challenge for the, in the final of Wimbledon for the men's singles. And they were saying, you know, how is it going to go, Andy? And he, he was saying... Uh, well, do you know what? I'm going to do my best. It might not be good enough, but I'm going to do my best. And I thought, that doesn't sound good. That doesn't, that's not sounding like he's out there thinking, I'm a winner. I'm going to get this title. He's like, oh, it might be good enough, might not be good enough. Thinking, no, mate, you've got to go into it with a positive attitude. Um, so we'll see. We'll see what happens this afternoon. But, uh, you know, people say, how you see yourself? Do you see yourself as it? It affects how you act, how you behave. The question is, how does that work out in God's kingdom, God's upside-down kingdom, as it's often called? Because sometimes the way we see ourselves can have, in a positive way, 
can have a, a negative effect. So we're going to look uh, at this in, uh, in Genesis 23. We're going to just explore a little bit more widely, and then we're going to hone down and look at that question. How do we see ourselves? This passage is looking at the death of Sarah. Uh, Sarah was Abraham's wife. She'd, uh, we don't know exactly what age they got married, but it was probably fairly young. And she dies at 127 years. So they could have even been celebrating their 100th wedding anniversary. Wow, what a celebration that would be for your 100th. I don't think anyone's got quite that far uh, here. But uh, 62 years after leaving their home in Ur, Uh, which was in Babylon, and entering into the land, the promised land, that was going to be theirs or their descendants one day. 62 years after they left, Sarah dies. And uh, Abraham mourns and weeps over her, obviously. Uh, When you've got to know someone and lived with someone and married someone for that long, there's a real uh, emotional uh, bond there that has been separated for a while. Uh, until you're reunited in, in heaven, if you know God. And uh, Abraham weeps, but then he's faced with a pressing problem. He needs somewhere to bury Sarah, because he's got no land. He has no land of his own. Um, they'd been traveling around, moving from place to place, sometimes staying for quite a long time in one place. Actually, this place, Marmara, which is mentioned, he stayed there for quite a long time, many, many years. Um, but there's no land that he can truly call his own. So he thinks, well, I've, I've got my wife to bury. And where am I going to bury her? I could just bury her somewhere, but then it's not my land. And, uh, you know, I might not be able to have access to it. Or, you know, it's just somewhere in, in, in the middle of nowhere. So he'd already had some issues uh, with property before. We didn't focus on this too much, but in chapter 21... Uh, and the end of that passage, the end of that chapter, Abraham complains, like 21 verse 25, it says, Abraham complains to Abimelech, who's the king, about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized. And they have this, uh, you know, dispute about it, and it kind of all works out well. But basically, Abraham's dug a well, and then someone else has taken it, and Abraham's saying, look, I dug this well, I should be able to have it. And Abimelech's, well, I didn't even know about it. It was very unclear. So he's already had that situation where he thinks he's kind of got something of his own, but he's not really because he doesn't own it. He's just dug a well. And now he's, he's got this issue. Where do I bury my wife? He wants to get somewhere which will legally be his, that he can, uh, he can bury Sarah. And eventually he gets it. He's keen to pay for it. So that there's no obligation at all. So the Hittites, uh, who lived in the area, they said, look, it's okay. You can, you can bury Sarah in any of our tombs. No one's going to hold it back from you. Just, just bury her. But he's thinking, no, but then there's a bit of an obligation then. You know, she's there. And they, they could say, well, you know, your wife's buried in one of our tombs. You need to kind of do some of these things that we're saying. He thinks, I don't want any obligation. And he says, I'll pay the full price for it. I'll pay the full price for the land. And so there's this, most of the chapter is this negotiation that goes on between Abraham and this guy Ephron, who's a, who's a Hittite. So Abraham wants to, wants to bury Sarah in this cave. And, uh, and first of all, Ephron says, well, fine, just, just bury her in the cave. He says, no, 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 I want to buy the cave off you. 
Everyone says, well, okay, you, you can maybe have it, have, have the cave, have the land. Abraham's thinking, well, I'm not sure I want the land, I want the cave, but okay. And it looks as though everyone's saying, have it for free. Some people think uh, that he was very generously offering it for free, it was, it was what he meant. Um, but others who know a bit more about the culture said, oh, that's kind of the way that they, they barter about it. Uh, in, in those countries. It would have been a negotiation. Oh, we're not interested in money. And then he drops in. By the way, it's, it's 400 shekels. But what's that between us? 400 shekels was a lot of money. A lot. Of, it was, you know, he was probably thinking, oh, you know, I'm going to take this guy. He's desperate. Um, so you could see it either way. You could see Ephron as being very generous or you could see him as being very cunning in how he negotiates and he's throwing in the price uh, and, and maybe thinking, you know, Abraham might be starting to negotiate or barter for this. Abraham's not going to enter into that. Abraham says, I'm going to pay the full price. Okay, you've named 400 shekels. I'm going to pay 400 shekels. Maybe Ephron went home and said, can you believe this guy, Abraham? He paid the first price I mentioned. I should have said 600. But Abraham wants this land. He doesn't want any uh, sense that there's any obligation. But now Abraham legally owns some land, and he buries Sarah, and uh, it seems that that's the end of the story. You could think, well, what is that? You know, Mark, come on, what are you going to preach out of this passage? There's not a lot here. Um, Abraham has a, has a bit of a negotiation, buries Sarah, end of story. Let's all go and enjoy the sun. Well, no, there's much to find here. <laughs> Sorry to disappoint. <laughs> no, what we're going to focus on is... This question of who do you see yourself as? How do you see yourself? And um, Abraham says this in verse 4 of Genesis 23. I am an alien and a stranger among you. I am an alien or a foreigner and a stranger among you. First of all, why did he say that? Why did he say that he was an alien or a foreigner? He's been living... In the land for 62 years. Now, he's not a stranger to them, really, is he, in that sense. He's not a stranger. These days, uh, usually if you move to a country, you can apply for citizenship. You can apply to become a a legal citizen of that country. And uh, often it's about five years you have to live somewhere. If you've lived somewhere for five years, you can then start to apply for citizenship And then you are a resident in that country. You have all the rights that everyone else has in that country. Abraham, 62 years. And he's been very well thought of in that time. But the truth is, he never wanted to be seen as a citizen of Canaan. Abraham didn't want to be seen. He didn't want to get citizenship. Because that wasn't what God had called him to be. If we look back at Genesis chapter 15... And verse 13, when, when God is speaking to Abraham about the promises that Abraham's going to come into, and he says, God says to him in verse 13 of Genesis 15, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and ill-treated for 400 years. Now, obviously, he was talking about Egypt as well, but there's this whole thing about the, the timing of God's promises, the timing of God giving Abraham this land wasn't going to be immediate. 
God's answering the question that Abraham has in verse 8. Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I shall gain possession of this land? I'm in this land. How do I know I'm going to get it? And God doesn't say, look, you're going to get it in a couple of years. He says 400 years. For 400 years, your descendants are going to be strangers and aliens. So Abraham is living in the land and he knows what God has called him to do. He's a stranger and an alien. He's a foreigner. He doesn't belong in that place. And so that's what he says to the people. And there's three very important reasons that we're going to look at today why it's important to know who we are. It's important to see ourselves in the right way. First one is this. Knowing who we are helps us not to be defined by others. Knowing who we are helps us not to be defined by others and maybe others' flattery. The Hittites, the people who live in the land, they saw Abraham in a very different way to how he saw himself. So Abraham says, I'm an alien and a stranger among you. Straight away they come back, verse 6, Sir, listen to us. Hear what we have to say about you. You are a mighty prince among us. So Abraham's saying, I'm just an alien, I'm just a foreigner. No, 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 don't listen to that, Abraham. Listen to us. You're a mighty prince. You're well thought of. You're well respected. You can do anything you want. And well, they might say that. It may well be that they're not, you know, they're, they're, they're speaking because they've seen something of who Abraham is. Abraham has a lot of wealth. He's got a lot of wealth. He was given a lot of wealth by Pharaoh in Genesis 12 when he went down to Egypt. He was given a lot of wealth by Abimelech in Genesis 20 when uh, there was the whole episode there with him and Sarah and Abimelech. Um, he'd also defeated four kings in battle in Genesis 14. He'd gone to war with his mates against four kings who'd uh, captured um, other kings and kingdoms, including his nephew Lot, and Abraham had gone to war and won the battle. Now, he refused to take any of the wealth. But he's going to be well thought of. He's done some pretty amazing things. And he's rich. And he's got lots of livestock. And he's got lots of servants. But the one thing he hasn't got is any land. He doesn't own any of the land. And that's deliberate. Of course, Abraham, with all his wealth, could have negotiated before this point. He could have bartered. He could have, he could have got hold of some of the land. But that's not what God had got for him. He would have won the award for good neighbor of the year as well, because people had a lot of respect for him. He was hospitable. We saw that in the way that he was in, uh, in Genesis, um, 18, I think it was, Genesis 18, when visitors came. He was very hospitable. People respected him. He helped his neighbors out. He interceded. He prayed for Sodom when he, when he got this um, word from God that God was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And he prayed on, on their behalf. Oh, God, if you find even ten righteous people, ten good people, will you save Sodom? He's calling on God. He's being a good neighbor. He would have maybe won that award. There's a, I was reading on the internet about a couple who won an award for neighbor of the year. Okay, here they are. Um, they're Carl and Christiane Ulrich. Uh, this is good neighbor of the year in, uh, in New Zealand. 
I just thought we'd widen things a little. Um, but New Zealand, good neighbor of the year. And, they, you know, they were fantastic neighbors. They were, they would, uh, this article said they mowed the lawn of their neighbors. Their neighbor was single parent mum. And, you know, they'd say, oh, when the lawn's getting a bit overgrown, we'd go out with our mower and we'd do it ourselves. And they would go and take some of their produce round, uh, and uh, to, to different houses and to different neighbors. I mean, it, you know, it doesn't look as though there were neighbors like, right next door to each other, does it? There's like miles of nothing. But they were, uh, they were being good neighbors. And uh, they, they said to them, uh, Carl and Christiane, what's your advice? What's your advice on being good neighbors? And they said this, go out there and meet your neighbors. Some may not be as forthcoming, but be persistent. Be like a blowfly, I guess, and don't go away. <laughs> I think... Oh, great. Do you want to be their neighbors? <laughs> They're just there all the time. No, go away. Give me some peace. That's why I moved to New Zealand. I didn't want any neighbors. <laughs> no, I just... I'm sure they're great neighbors. <laughs> but that's their advice. Be like a blowfly. Well, we can get rid of them now. Um, we... Bye. Um, Abraham, he was a good neighbor. He was a good neighbor. Um, I guess it fits in with what Jeremy was encouraging us last week about who we are in God. It's not all about church meetings. Actually, it can be about us being good neighbors to people. It can can be about us just going the extra mile in our workplace or or thinking, you know what, I'm going to bring some of God's kingdom into this situation. And it might be clearing your neighbor's drive of snow or mowing their lawn or bringing them some food or whatever it might be. We can be good neighbors. It's not a bad thing that Abraham was doing. But Abraham didn't want to be defined by that. He didn't want the way other people saw him to change how he thought about himself. You see, he realized this land that people are saying I'm a prince of, it's not mine. It's not my land yet. Now, he had a promise for that land. He could have just been saying, do you know what? I'm going to come into this land anyway. So I'm just going to, and these guys seem very warm towards me. So I'm going to treat it as though it's my own. But he didn't do that. He knew that right now, right at the point he was, he hadn't come into the land. There's a future promise for him. But right now, he's not received it from God. So he keeps in his mind a right view of who he is. He's a stranger And he's an alien. He's a foreigner. And we'll see later, the Bible tells us that that's the same for us too. We have promises from God about what we'll come into in the future. But he says right now, we are strangers and aliens, foreigners in this land. He knows who he is. He goes and lives there. He's a blessing to other people. He shows great hospitality. He blesses his neighbors. He battles and wins victory. He cries out to say to God for them but he knows he's not one of them. He knows he's not one of them. Who he is, his identity is tied up in God and in what God has said about him and in God's promise for the future. We see it in other parts of the Bible as well. In Jeremiah 29, in Jeremiah 29, we've we've looked at this in a few different situations when we've met recently in prayer meetings and things. But Jeremiah 29, we see a letter from the prophet Jeremiah, sent to the people, the exiles, who've been taken out uh, into captivity and taken to Babylon. And uh, this is what 
Jeremiah says in verse 4, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to those who I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses, settle down, plant gardens, eat what they produce, marry, have sons and daughters, find wives for your sons, give your daughters in marriage so that they might have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. All right, so these people are to seek the peace and prosperity of the place where they are. They're to be good neighbors, in other words. They're to be good neighbors. They're to, they're to, they're to be favored by the people. And that's exactly what we see happened with Daniel. You read through the book of Daniel, you see he was well thought of. He rose to a position of prominence. He rose to a position of favor. But these people know they are not citizens of Babylon. That's not where they live. That's not where they are. That's not who they are. It is where they live for the time being, but it's not who they are. It's not what they're to put everything in, all their hopes in. There's a promise later on in Jeremiah 29 that they will go back. Verse 10, this is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to you to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You'll seek me and when you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather from you to you from all the nations and places I've banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. Okay? We often just take those few verses in the middle of that, don't we? I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you. We sometimes misapply them and say, oh, that means God's going to give us good things here on earth now. It's not what God was saying. God was saying, you're in a bad place. You're in a place of captivity. But I tell you what, do everything you can to bless the people where you are while you are strangers and aliens. And one day, I will take you to a better place. I will take you to, the, to my home and your home, a promised land. That's the plans I have for you. And so for us, we can think we are strangers and we are aliens here on the earth. But God's plans for us, he's got plans to prosper us and give us a hope and a future. What is that? It's a future heavenly hope. That's what he's talking about. That's what the Bible does. We are strangers and aliens for however long we are going to live here on earth. Jeremy spoke about being called to influence and leadership in society. That's what God was saying to the Israelites. But they knew they were going to leave one day. We can be called to that same calling. Influence, leadership in society. But we need to remember who we are. We need to not forget who we are. We are not citizens of this place. We do not fit in. In the same way that the Israelites didn't fit in in Babylon. And Abraham didn't fit in. Even though it was the same land that God had promised. He was a stranger and an alien. Knowing who you are helps us not to be defined by others. Secondly, knowing who we are helps us to resist the temptation to compromise. 
The Hittites were offering Abraham a free place to bury his wife, perhaps, depending on how you interpret it. But maybe they were saying, they were certainly saying, do you know what? Just bury your wife. You can take your pick of the graves. You know, they weren't that keen to sell. They weren't that keen. But they were saying, just bury her here. Yet he would have maybe been beholden to them, as I've said. Maybe he would have been forced to compromise further down the line. Maybe they would have said, you know what, you want to go and visit your wife? Oh, I'm not so sure. I tell you what, you know, if we let you do that, you do this for us. And he would have thought, oh no, now I'm, now I've got this obligation. Now if I want to go and see my wife or, or even, you know, they might, they might have said all sorts of things because they can use a situation that it seems they've got a free gift as emotional manipulation, can't it? You know when people give you a free gift, sometimes you get sucked in. It's like that with, uh, with drugs. I understand that sometimes, uh, dealers will say to, to people, oh, do you know what? Have this. They get them hooked in. They say, oh, it's free. You can have it for free. Later on, they know they're going to have control over that relationship. They know that people are going to come back for them for more. Oh, I might go somewhere else. Oh, I gave you a free one. You know, someone had to pay for that. I think you need to come back to me. If you want any more, you come back to me. They're beholden to them. And we can be beholden to people if we're not careful. Abraham could have been beholden to the Hittites but he didn't. He said, no, I'm going to pay the full price. Abraham could have settled in the country in the way that other people did. He could have just settled down in the way that his nephew Lot did. If you remember Lot, he saw the land. He said, this is a great land to live in. It's prosperous. Of course it was a great land. God had promised that it was a land overflowing with milk and honey. Produce could grow there. You could have get wealth and influence there. That's what Lot saw. And, and, we, and we've already seen in Genesis that Lot got sucked in to this land, into this city with its immorality and its way of living and way of thinking and way of behaving. And it was very, very hard for him to come out of that. And in fact, his wife couldn't leave. She couldn't, she turned back. Oh, I'm, I'm drawn to this. He'd given his heart too much to it. Abraham could have done the same thing. He could have begun to live in that way. Daniel could have received the favor and the privilege which came his way. He could have started to enjoy the benefits of life in Babylon. We can be drawn in to our life here in Sheffield, in Great Britain, the United Kingdom. And we can see many positive things. We can see many attractive things and we can get seduced. We can just say, do you know what? While we're here, we're just going to live the same way that everyone else lives. We're just going to enjoy the pleasures and the benefits that everyone else can enjoy. And we forget. We forget that we are strangers and aliens. We don't belong here. And so we compromise and we get sucked in. Life may be good. God may have blessed us with wealth in the same way that he blessed Abraham. He may have blessed us with influence and position and that people may think of us well. We may be very well thought of well-liked, have found favor with people. Hopefully we will. That's what God calls us to, to find favor with people, to be well thought of so that others may not criticize us, may not, um, may not say, oh, you know, they're terrible. But with that comes the temptation. With that comes temptation to slip into compromise, to live like this is our home. 
But Abraham didn't do that. Peter can highlight who we are. Peter highlights who we are in his letter, first letter. 1 Peter and chapter 1. He starts off his letter by saying this. He makes it clear who he's writing to. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered through Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia. He goes on as to where they are. These are where you're all living, all these cities, all these places, regions where you're living. Who are you? You're strangers in the world. You're aliens. You're foreigners. You don't belong in this world. He's making it very clear. He goes on to say about the trials and speak into the trials and the difficulties that people are going through in this life and says, you've got a living hope in God. But then he goes on in verse 11 and he says, uh, he says this in chapter two of verse 11, chapter two, verse 11. He says, dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Peter's seeing there's this temptation. He's seeing that if we're in the world and we're relating to people around us, because we're not called to be some separate community, we're not called to be distant from everyone else, we're called to be good neighbors. We call that people will see our good works, will live amongst us. We will live amongst them. And so they'll, they'll understand what we're like. They'll work with us. They'll be neighbors with us. But he's seeing that there's this temptation. He says, look, I urge you, abstain against sinful desires, which war against your soul. He's being honest. He's saying there's a war going on. There's a war. This isn't just the kind of, oh, I suppose I could do this. I can take it or leave it, really. No, there's this battle going on inside us. We really want to do it. We really want to live in this way. We don't want to live in a different way to anyone else. We all understand that battle. We don't want to stand out. We don't want to go against the flow. So when we're with our friends and our colleagues and our neighbors and we think, oh, do you know, now I'm finding myself in this situation I kind of know I shouldn't be doing the things that they're doing. I kind of know I shouldn't be going the way they're going on. Peter's being honest. He's saying there's a war going on. We're tempted. There's a battle going on. And he's urging his his readers, um, abstain against these desires. They're strong desires. We can easily give in to them. Because no one else is, is, is standing against them. Everyone else is just giving in to them. If it feels, if it feels like the right thing, then I'm going to do that. So they do it. And we think, but everyone else is doing it. And I, I kind of know it's wrong, but there's this pull, this temptation. Peter's saying, no. Live such good lives that though they may accuse you of doing wrong, they see your good deeds. They might say, do you know what? You Christians do the same as us. You don't do any different to us. You just say you're going to be different. You preach that you should be different. You're just the same. You live in the same way. And Peter's saying, let's live in a different way. Let's not compromise. How do we do it? What can help us? Well, Paul's letter to Titus helps us know how we can be helped in that. Titus 2 and verse 11. For the grace of God 
that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us, to buy us back from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Paul is saying it's the grace of God that helps us. A true understanding of the grace of God. That we were just enslaved into the same ways that everyone else was enslaved into. The, the, the position that all humanity was in. That sinful desires can come in. Things that we shouldn't do. Things that aren't godly. And we just go along with it. And we're stuck in that. But Paul's saying, no. Jesus died for that. He bought us back for that. He redeemed us. He paid a price. The price he paid was his own life. That he lived a perfect, holy, good, God-honoring life. And he substituted that for our life. And so he gave us his righteousness and, his, and God's forgiveness. And he took the punishment for God. And, and so God would say, you've been bought. You've been bought at a price. And now you've got the, the Holy Spirit as well. And you don't have to live in those ways any longer. You've got the power of God living in you. And you've understood what it means to receive God's grace. So you, you don't have to live in those ways. The grace of God teaches us what? To say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. And it teaches us to live self-controlled lives, upright lives, godly lives. There's a real battle going on. We all will face these temptations. We all will face that. But Paul and Peter are urging us, and God is urging us, to live different lives. Why? Because we have and wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We've got a future hope. This isn't it. This isn't the end. We're waiting We're waiting for Jesus to return. We're waiting for Jesus to bring about a new heavens and a new earth. The promised land for us. The promised kingdom. Where we will be with him forever. So we wait and we battle and we wage war with the power of God within us. Knowing who we are helps us resist the temptation to compromise. And finally, knowing who we are helps us in our present struggles. And it reminds us that the best is yet to come. Knowing who we are helps us in our present struggles. Abraham lived with pain and grief in his life. We're just reading about the death of his wife. There's real struggles, real hardship. When someone close to us, a husband, a wife, a son, a daughter, a dear friend, when they die... That's very real. That's very real to us. There's real pain and grief and mourning. And there can be many other struggles that we go through. Many other difficulties which just cause us such pain. Abraham lived through that pain and grief. Abraham lived through the pain and the grief of not having a child for many, many years. Sarah did too. Yeah, Abraham then had 
had Ishmael through Hagar, and he kind of went along with that a bit. But for Sarah, still, still that pain, still that grief. I've not got a son to call my own. And she sees Ishmael, and there's pain there. And she sometimes reacts to that, and she sometimes loses it. And she says, Abraham, send him away. I don't want him here in my face. Because I'm living with this pain myself of childlessness. So they've been through some tough times. Some tough times, some real struggles. And we can go through some tough times too. Some real struggles. Genuine things. Hebrews 11 speaks about this. The writer to the Hebrews is writing to a people who are being persecuted, who are being attacked for their faith. And he writes about Abraham and he writes about Sarah and others who live by faith. And he says this, all these people, verse 13, were still living by faith when they died. They didn't receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. You know, they lived this life of faith. Sarah lived a life of faith, and yes, she came into the point where she had a child. She then had to cope with Abraham going and taking him to sacrifice him. It doesn't even get recorded as to how she reacted to that. I wonder even if Abraham told her. I I would imagine the strong temptation is he didn't. You know, he's carrying this belief and this, okay, I'm I'm holding on to God, and he's promised that Isaac's going to going to be the one who the promise has come about for. But, but God, you've told me to sacrifice him. Okay, I'm going to go and sacrifice him. He may not even have told Sarah. But he's living with that pain. And he's prepared to do it. He's prepared to sacrifice the son that he loves the most. There's real pain and hardship. Sarah doesn't come into what is promised in terms of the land. They never own any land of the promised land while Sarah is alive. 127 years, Abraham never comes to a point where they come into the land. And neither does Isaac and neither does Jacob. And neither does Joseph. And it goes on. It goes on for years and years and years. They see something. They're believing for something. But they don't receive it themselves in their earthly life. And it says, why? How could they do that? It said they admitted they were aliens and strangers. They admitted who they were. They knew who they were. It says people who say such things show they're looking for a country of their own. Verse 16, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God isn't ashamed to be called their God. He has prepared a city for them. They were believing for something that they would never come into on this earth. And on this earth, what did they experience? They experienced pain and difficulty and hardship and death. That's what they experienced. But they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. That's ultimately what they were waiting for. And God honors them and he says, do you know what? I'm not ashamed of them. I'm with them. They're my people. I'm preparing somewhere for them. And for us, obedience to God right now might seem as though it's the hardest thing. It might seem as though we think, well, God, you're saying I've got to give up on something. In the same way that you said about Isaac and someone who you love, 
it seems like you're telling me I've got to give up on things, to miss out on things, to live a life where we're going to actually be miserable. I can't believe it's going to turn out well. I can't believe it's going to turn out well. Or we may just be in the reality of, of, of loss and pain and grief. But in this, God would encourage us to look forward, look to what he has for us, trusting him for the future. These people didn't receive the things promised when they lived. They welcomed them from a distance. They welcomed them from a distance. Abraham bought a piece of land. And he buried Sarah in it. And in effect, that was a prophetic statement of what God was going to do. He's got some of the land. I think that's why Abraham was buried there. And Isaac was taken and buried in the same place. And Jacob was buried in the same place. It was like, God, these people who are carrying the promises, who are believing in you, who are believing that you've got something better, they're going to be put in the place that they got through faith. Oh, he could say, Abraham just bought it. It doesn't matter. He could have afforded anything. He didn't do that before. But he bought it in faith because he's saying, I'm going to just have somewhere that is prophetically saying, God's going to do far more than this. And, and for now, it's a small thing. For now, it's just a field and a cave and a few trees. But you know what? It's going to be far more than that. It's going to be far more than that. And we can have some things now that we think... It doesn't look much. It doesn't seem much. How are we going to come into all that God has said? God's given us promises. God's given us some promises for this earth and he's given us huge promises for the future. But right now, this is tough. I don't see it. And God's saying, do you know what? Just hold on in faith to what I've given you. Because it's going to be far greater than that. Even if you don't fully see it now. The rest of Hebrews 11 talks about many, many people who lived by faith in God, but they didn't see what they were believing for. They didn't come into it. Verse 39 says, these, these were all, in fact, well, let's do verse 32 first of all. It talks about these people. Who, he says, I don't even, I'll tell you about these. I don't even have time to tell you about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and others, um, you know, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, Gained what was promised, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of flames, escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. You might think, well, that's victorious living, isn't it? That's amazing. Look at all those things that happened. Yeah, for some people, we will see miracles. For some people, we will see God acting. But then it goes on. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. But then it says others were tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging. Still others were chained and put in prison. And they were stoned. And they were sawn in two. And they were put to death by the sword. And they went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, ill-treated, The world wasn't worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and holes in the ground. What sort of life's that? Two different things. People who see mighty miracles and mouths of lions shut and, you know, people seeing their dead raised back to life. God is amazing. God can do that. Does God do that with everyone? No. 
Others are put to death and face scorn and shame and ridicule and poverty and wander about with nothing to call their own. And verse 39 says, these were all commended for their faith. All of them. God had different paths for each of them. God has different paths for each of us. We can, we can think, do you know what? God really blesses me. It's amazing. The temptation for us is not to just think this, this life's it. Not just to think we've got it made here. For others, we might look at, at people in the church and just think, why do they get blessed? Why do they get healed? Why are they going through this? But I've not got this myself. Why do I have to suffer that pain and heartache and agony? And I pray and my prayers don't seem to get answered. And I trust in God and God, you don't seem to come through. Why don't you intervene? Why aren't you interested in me? Why don't we see more miracles, God? Maybe it's my lack of faith. We can beat ourselves up over it. Actually, maybe we just get bitter and and blame God. God, I've trusted in you and you've not come through for me. God's saying, this isn't the end. This isn't the final story. It's not the last chapter. All these people walked in faith. They didn't receive what they had promised. What's, what's the writer saying? Actually, the writer's saying the promises of God, on the whole, are not for this world. The promises, the main promises of God that we carry, they're not for this world. They're not for this life. We may see something of God breaking in in this life. We may see something of the kingdom in our life, in healing and in deliverance. But it's, it's just a small part because the promises of God are for a life to come. The promises of God are for after Jesus returns. And right now, we walk in faith knowing we are strangers and aliens in this life. Sometimes people in the Bible couldn't see that what they were going through was part of God fulfilling his promises. And maybe we feel that too. Maybe all we can see is the difficulty of our present crisis. But the life of faith is that of a stranger and an alien, a foreigner, whilst seeking and desiring another country. It's not just about making a decision to follow Christ and suddenly everything being hunky-dory and everything being wonderful on this life. It's walking away from this world as our home. You need to know that. If you want to follow Christ, like Abraham, you're leaving your home. You're walking away from all you've known. And you might physically still live here, but you suddenly become a foreigner a stranger, an alien. You seek new desires, new satisfactions. You'll probably have to cope with more pain and hardship than you would have done otherwise. But you know the best is yet to come. Nothing short of our heavenly home 
and our heavenly hope will satisfy us. And the good news is, brothers and sisters, there is something better for us. God's promises will be fulfilled. This life, this earth, that's not it. There's the coming of a new heavens and a new earth. And you know what? We're going to hear about that even in the next few weeks as Dan preaches through the book of Revelation. And he's getting to the end of it and we're getting to chapters 21 and 22. We're seeing the new Jerusalem. Wonderful. I just find it amazing that we, that, you know, I'm preaching through Genesis, the first book in the Bible. Dan's preaching through Revelation, the last book in the Bible. And we're coming to the end of these books at the same time of these passages. Now, I'm just going to stop probably next week in the life of Abraham. But God's tying them together and he's saying, do you know what? As you walk out in faith and believing in the promises of God and believing for a land and believing for something better, I'm going to remind you while Dan is preaching of the best things that are going to come. This is what you're hoping for. God wants to remind us of that. He wants us to know that in our hearts. Because do you know what? Life's tough. Life's tough. We're gonna go, we've been through some hard times. We're going through some hard times. We know life's not easy. We know life's not easy personally. We know it's not like that for the church. But there's a great and glorious hope. And we will come into that inheritance of living and, and perhaps ruling with Christ in a new heavens and a new earth. Not somewhere out in the sky, but here. It will come here. We're like Abraham. We're living in the land. But it's occupied by others at the moment who aren't living for God. And we are strangers and aliens. So how do we see ourselves? How do we see ourselves? If we see ourselves the way that God sees us, it will affect how we act. We will show that we're seeking and believing for a new heaven and a new earth by admitting that we're strangers and aliens right now. We won't allow ourselves to be defined by what others say of us and think of us and their flattery perhaps. We'll resist the temptation to compromise. We won't get seduced by the attractions and the desires of this life. Get sucked into giving into sinful desires which wage war against our soul. And we'll be helped in our present troubles not to get disappointed with God when we struggle against hardship, sickness, death and opposition. Because we'll know the best is yet to come. And there's a hope out there which is glorious, which is coming. Let's pray.